This is Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. Tonight, Brenda Starr is our host. As always, we welcome your contributions. Give us a call at 826-4805, toll free at 800-640-5911, and to our text line at 492-KHSU. And good evening. I'm Brenda Starr, your host this evening. And uh, in the words of Aretha Franklin, let's go back, let's go back, let's go way on, way back when. Uh, 1968. 1968. Personally, I was a junior moving into my senior year of high school. A lot of stuff going on in the world. Um, Tonight, we're going to be dealing with one of the anniversaries of 1968. The Mili Massacre did happen that year. But let's go back and look at other things that happened that year. In January 1968, the Tet Offensive. Tet is uh, Lunar New Year. So in South Vietnam and China, they were celebrating that. And uh, forces came into that uh, small country uh, in South Vietnam that uh, U.S. forces did not realize. Ultimately, they might have won the battle, but some say that's when we lost the war. February 1st, the shot seen round the world. During the rounding up after that Tet Offensive of all the betrayers in South Vietnam, photographer Eddie Adams caught a uh, South Vietnamese general shooting a suspect in the head in cold blood. Adams would receive a Pulitzer Prize for that. April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. shot and killed in Memphis. Dr. King was not only a civil rights leader of nonviolence, but a vocal opponent of the Vietnam War. In June, Robert F. Kennedy. He was a critic of President Johnson's policies in Vietnam, which is kind of ironic since his brother sent the first uh, advisors there uh, when he was president. He then declared his candidacy for U.S. president and was shot and killed at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. The Chicago 8, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, where they chanted, they chanted, the whole world's watching, the whole world is watching. University protests all over the country. But tonight we're going to look at not the politics of assassination, but the politics of war. My guests this evening are from Arcata. Uh, Veterans for Peace, Rob Hepburn, and artist Mac McDevitt, who is here to talk about, he's designed an interactive exhibit that has traveled across the country, um, paired with a series of lectures about discussing the true cost of war, and it's the Milai Memorial Traveling Exhibit. It provides participants with a powerful anti-war experience. It invites people to make a renewed commitment to peace and social justice and provides opportunities to support initiatives working to reduce violence and militarism both at home and abroad. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Thank you. Thanks, Brenda. Rob, I'm going to start with you. Why Mm -hmm. don't you uh, um, introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, everyone. Uh, My name's Rob Hepburn. I'm... um, former member of the Marine Corps, USMC, um, 3rd uh, Division, 3rd Battalion, um, and 3rd uh, Shore Party, and uh, Platoon 52, and um, 
so uh, I was in uh, up north. You know, started off in a little place called Dogpatch, a little village outside of Da Nang, and then went north to the DMZ, which is right on the border between North and South Vietnam. From there, and I did see considerable amount of action. Um, um, I saw atros- atrocities. Um, and I, I saw what I would call smaller versions of Milai, at least one, um, as an eyewitness. So, um, and then the, as soon as I got out of the war, I was there before the Tet Offensive, by the way. Mm. Um, I joined the uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. And uh, we were very active there then in the anti-war movement. Remember that famous shot of us throwing the medals back in Washington, D.C., for example. But we had a very active San Francisco chapter that I was a member of. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and Mac? Well, Brenda and Rob, Rob, I did sort of everything I could do to not be in your place. And uh, in uh, about that time, I was ready to graduate from college around 1966, 1967. And I started reading about the Vietnam War. I started reading Jonathan Schell and uh, articles by him. And uh, when I read about a spotter uh, calling in an airstrike on a little boy and a water buffalo, I decided I just could not go. I, I couldn't do it. And I had enough privilege that uh, after wrestling with my draft board and doing a little bit of shuffling around, being dumb like Columbo, uh, I was able to uh, get into graduate school. And then after that, I was able to teach, and that gave me a deferment. I was always aware that the fact that I was able to get out of it, get out of the draft, meant somebody else with less privilege probably went in my place. So... Um, that was that was what was happening with me back in the sixties, and um, I can't say that I was drafted because there was no conscription for women then. It could be coming down the road a little bit, but uh, women were not drafted then. But you know, it, when I mentioned uh, the photograph of the shot seen around the world, I was a very anti-war protester, this, that, and the other. And then I decided I wanted to go over to Vietnam and seek the truth and become a Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist. I just graduated from, you know, School of Visual Arts, and this is what I was going to do. And um, the twists and turns that that, <laughs> that took really d- didn't, did not land me there. I don't regret that it didn't land me there. Um, what happened in lieu of that was I was uh, stationed in Germany where it was all the last of the draftees. Mm -hmm. I was in the Women's Army Corps, so we were uh, separate and unequal. Then we were integrated. Then we did have to qualify with weapons. Then we all became the same. We all Mm -hmm. had the same potential to kill. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talked to uh, uh, a lot of uh, men who were there in Germany for R&R. And like I said, the last of the draftees. Um, Those are just haunting stories and, and memories. Um, so I just wanted to uh, say that out loud. <laughs> so you didn't go, but but I did. And we were t- Mac and I were talking. My, my mother was not pleased at all. Mm. Um, but anyway, then I I told her, well, you also aren't giving me any money for college. So there are a lot of reasons why people do things. But there's there's a uh, 
not too many people get to uh, avoid the draft not during that time um and those that were there um like lieutenant william Kelly, let's just talk about uh me for 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 a moment um this was a 25 year old his nickname was rusty so he's a redhead and uh that day in March, this incident happened in March 1968, yet the, the general public didn't find out about it until 1969 because uh, Seymour Hirsch wrote an article, some of the beginning of our uh, investigative journalism. A lot of it started with war, war mm-hmm. and government secrets and government secrets about war. <laughs> really uh, op- opened up a whole uh, mm-hmm. plethora of, of, of ways that you can go out and, and seek the mm-hmm. truth. Um, so from that, uh, we, we do know that uh, he was brought, uh, brought up, court-martialed. Originally, I think the, the, they were charging him with 108 deaths. Max probably going to tell us, you know, it, it was probably at least 500 uh, that day. Uh, if not more, and then he was basically court-martialed for um, murdering unarmed civilians, and the number was 22. Um, And then later on, what, a year or so later, he was basically not acquitted, I guess that would be a a civilian legal term, but a judge threw that out. After three and a half years of being on house arrest, they threw that out. So that's the legacy of this massacre as far as what the American people you know, knew at the time. Um, now our TVs, you were over there. What, um, well, what I want to know from you is uh, you, you spoke, Rob, about how you saw a lot of things there too that yeah. might have been characterized. Yeah. Yeah, that right. Way. Yeah, um, from my perspective, first of all, I want to make it clear that I view war as the ultimate terrorism. We talk about, our government talks about a war on terrorism, right, when it wages war in Iraq and Afghanistan. But war is terrorism. It's the ultimate terrorism. It terrorizes babies. It terrorizes, right, moms with babies in their bellies, Right, you know, it's so it's it, you know so that's war is terrorist. Okay, now the particular war Vietnam was also a race war. Okay, from my experience. Okay, from the day I got off, even before I got there in, at Paris Island, South Carolina, when we were we were doing bayonet practice, there was a word over top the sandbags, and it wasn't. VC, it was gook. Yep. A term that was coined in the Philippine War uh, before. A totally racist, dehumanizing word. The other word usually used was dink, another. And that's all the Vietnamese were considered. I never heard them uh, referred to in any other way. And um, so... Uh, and this started, so that programming of dehumanization started back in boot camp before we even got the NOM, right? And it was very effective to some troops, um, the varying degrees, you know. And um, I remember, first of all, anything, all the area outside the, the wire or compound was called Indian country, Okay. 
I remember walking by a Huey helicopter with M50 guns ready to go out and mow down people in the rice paddies. And, and it had these big uh, white uh, shark, like shark teeth, right? On the edge, right. But then on the side of it, big, big white letters was Custard's Revenge. There was, for some troops, like a regression in historical epic that they were fighting an Indian war. Literally. You know, and so, you know, the gooks were the Indians, right? The, you, know, the, you know, the Vietnamese were gooks, which were, right, Indians from the West. And then at home, you and your fellow soldiers were referred to as grunts because if you were killed... You were just mm -hmm. a grunt. That was mm -hmm. immaterial mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. remembering that. Right. Now, there was an estimated 3.8 million Vietnamese died during the war, 80,000 Cambodians and 1 million Laotians. The U.S. death total was 58,000, which was a lot for our wars, not since maybe what? No, I would war. say about three times that amount of died since... Exactly. We're just talking yeah, on but, the battlefields. From, we're not talking uh, about in home. We're not talking about right. still to this day, uh, suicides, uh, opioid overdose, et cetera, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yes, the legacy continues. <laughs> and um, Mac, what made you, uh, you, you mentioned it before, what made you want to uh, take this issue particularly? Because the war is so big. You know, there was the Tet Offensive. There was, I mean, there was a lot of other things. What, what was it with this? Well, what what happened? A number of things happened. I retired. My wife got a job in Chicago. I wanted to get involved in activism, so I, I joined Veterans for Peace as an associate member, and uh, and and the fact that for the people who lived in Vietnam, many of the people, it was really a Holocaust. And that that was seldom mentioned. Um, when I when I saw that picture of the women and children just before they'd been shot by U.S. soldiers at Milai, I felt like somebody punched me in the gut. That was back in the '60s. And uh, well, and and one thing that happened was I had a friend in a little town we were living in who had an art gallery, and he said they were going to do a Fourth of July show, and the, it was going to feature the flag. And I thought, you know. I know what's going to be there. They're going to these flags on these cute white porches, you know, and with the chairs, the lawn chairs and stuff. But when I, every time I see the flag, I see those people too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I did this collage, basically. I took that picture of the women and children and I took a flag designed from a t-shirt and I put them on oak blocks and I set something up and I said to people, uh, 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 how do you put these two things together? Mm. And they they put them together, and then we talked. And I thought I was the only one who felt, like, terrible about this, but I wasn't. So when I got to Chicago, I kind of got that going again, went to some Chicago teachers for just social justice fairs and and would work with all kinds of people who'd, who'd build... I have another one, too, but they'd build these collages, and then we'd talk about it. and And then... I heard that the Pentagon was going to spend was spending sixty three million dollars to glorify our Vietnam War, and I thought, you know, 
we got to tell this other story. We've got to ha- tell the story. How do you mean glor- they were spending $63 million to glorify the war? <laughs> well, the, yeah. the idea was we were going to talk about, first of all, we're going to honor the veterans from Vietnam, thought of as kind of a neglected group. And then the other thing we were going to do is talk about sort of the medical advances and uh, the advances in military strategy. and uh, So kind of like when you look back at NASA, the things that it, help to promote is that what the the government well i think you know what's always behind this is you want you want you Mm -hmm. want to make the military and war it's called white white washing (laughs) yes but it it also helps recruiting you know the Mm -hmm. more we can put our wars center stage but uh but i knew in that they had a website and whatever but i Mm -hmm. knew in that there was going to be little regard for the civilians who actually lived in that country and we have the luxury of going to war in countries where we don't live and there's people who live there they're trying to raise families and for especially in the mekong delta and the northern provinces of south vietnam where a lot of the heavy fighting took place Mm -hmm. people had to live there year after year for 10 years as their lives fall apart, fell apart, their social fabric was ripped, ripped apart. So I wanted to tell that story. I want to have people have a chance to, to hear that. Did you do collages before that? I had played around when I was in graduate school uh, with what happened when you put photographs on blocks. But you liked that juxtapositioning. Well, I, I was trying to heal myself, actually. Mm. It sort of helped me to move them around. And I thought I could do this cool collage and glue it together and put it on the wall, or I could ask other people <clears> to do it. So, And then when the dialogue came out of that, because people would often talk about racism, social justice issues, it wasn't necessarily about Vietnam. It was uh, about their own lives and how they felt about the country and where the country was and how they felt about the way we've waged wars really forever wars uh, since Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Thursday Night Talk here on KHSU. I'm Brenda Starr, your host this evening, and my guests are Rob Hepburn from Arcade of Veterans for Peace and artist Mac McDevitt, and we're discussing war, peace, and memorials. Your comments, feelings, questions, and concerns are welcome. Please call us here at the studio, 826-4805. Our toll-free number is 800 640 5911. If you don't want to talk on air, you can uh, text uh, Michael at 492-5478 locally, and uh, he will read them on the air. We welcome your calls, your comments, and your feedback. Following up on what Mac was saying, um, yeah, the um, Veterans for Peace, we're we're national and actually a worldwide organization. We have a chapter in Vietnam, and we've been sponsoring the Friendship Village and the Friendship Village is uh, a school, medical and school combined, treating uh, the uh, children and grandchildren of the, of the civilian casualties who have uh, sometimes uh, very major, major birth defects and that are still being born today with birth defects as we speak from the war from the herbicides, Agent Orange, Agent Blue, and Agent White, right? So that's the legacy that's still continuing to, the, to this day. You know, Cy Hirsch, I listened to him on, <clears throat> must have been several years ago, Democracy Now!, and he was talking about here he investigated this whole incident, this massacre, and yet he had, n- he had not been to Vietnam. 
and he wound up going back. I, I forget what anniversary it was, but it was decades after the war. Just just a couple years ago, actually. And he was amazed, even though you know we we know not only the atrocities, how many people were killed, et cetera, et cetera. His he was amazed by people who had yes their families had died from from our bullets, from our herbicides. Yet there still was a welcoming, mm-hmm. and that's. I thought of that when I when I when I read about your memorial, because you can't have a welcoming unless you accept what happened. Mm-hmm. They have to accept what happened. They live there. Mm-hmm. They have had to try to till those you know, unfertile fields, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that your project helps people to do that. You have to, look, we were talking before the show, when you educate someone, especially through art, it can open up their heart and their compassion and their empathy and their um, uh, their civic duties and what you're trying to instigate you uh, when you're talking about, well, people do um, do their own artwork to reflect what this means to them. Yes, the the exhibit is actually quite brutal. It starts out with we see we can't really understand what people lost until we understand what they had. So it talks about life in those northern provinces and the villages before the Americans came. Tight family lives, three generations to be accepted in a village, mm-hmm. pu- irrigation projects, you know, wet, wet rice farming, mm-hmm. etc. Really what people describe as really a beautiful, vibrant culture and people. And then you go around the corner, and there's the Milai massacre in detail, um, and uh, and it's very painful to read the details, especially the sexual abuse of women and the sexual mutilation that the soldiers, our boys, our good boys, uh, engaged in. And then the next part of the exhibit is that there were many Milais, mm-hmm. from the air and bombing, till the point we just started killing Vietnamese. As long as they were Vietnamese, if they were dead, they were counted in the body counts as as, uh, Viet Cong. So it was, and there was a whole incentive system built into this and policy that did this and colonels who were trying to become generals who needed a certain body count. So, and then we look at the legacy of the war. You know, the fact, just like Rob, you were talking about, um, Mm -hmm. these villages no longer exist because when we went in we didn't just kill the people we poisoned the wells they had huge trees that for generations they'd sheltered under at the village gate we cut them down we knocked mm-hmm. them down we broke the dikes we uh we so but anyway it's it's just uh, water buffaloes were shot down right for fun just yeah. Um, well, you know, kill far, anything. Once again, reminiscent of the Indian wars, yes, right? Yes. right? You know, a it, war war of attrition. Right. Right. Yeah. Destroy the crops. Destroy the rice paddies. That's what that did. The herbicides. It was a, a war of attrition, of course. Yes. It was more. It was a genocidal war, actually. Mm-hmm. Really, when you you know you go to a whole group of people to take away their their source of food, their sustenance, anything that could help them live. You know, for a whole population, that that I think that's a war of genocide. Well, uh, Mac, you talk about the incentives. You know, one of one of the theories uh, along the years was that uh, Lieutenant Kelly was you know looking for his little promotion. Um, 
They found three weapons that day. Three weapons. Right. For the lives of, what, 500, for the massacre of women, children, babies. Can I say, Brenda, I think one of the problems is bringing Callie up again and again because... um, one had, person, just I one had person. A, well, he was the he was the fall guy, really. There were several. Yes. Well, you could Don't you that. think he was a but, fall guy? In a the way, thing, there are uh, probably a half a dozen other people who could have been, well, I had, but they weren't. When uh, we had the exhibit in Santa Fe, there was a, a, a guy who came up to me, and he, uh, he looked a little stunned, and he said, I, I thought, you mean this was an actual operation? There were commanders flying up above Milai, looking down, listening on the radio, giving orders... And I said, yeah, yeah, here, come, re- read it in the panel. There were three different commanders at different heights watching what was going on. He said, I always thought that this was just something that, you know, one sort of renegade right. group mm-hmm. did. Right. Mm-hmm. But no, this was this was part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there's, I always think that it's the details that get us. Yeah. And so... Anyway, it's. I was going to say it's. A, it's a difficult exhibit, and when people are finished looking at the panels, if possible, they need to be able to process, to talk. And what I loved about the way the exhibit worked in these, um, you know, in San Diego and Fresno and Santa Fe and, and San San Francisco, is when I'd walk into the room where the exhibit was, you'd hear this buzz of people talking. There's people building collages. There's there's processing going on. Um, and sharing going on, a lot of the veterans sharing their stories. So anyway, and and people talking like you did about where they were and what they mm-hmm. were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's the whole idea. And in a sense, it's healing. It's it's uh, it helps people process this, and it makes it hard to feel good about war and about the the sort of glorification of the military. Mm-hmm. Well, it's continued. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, Mac talking about the, the cohesion and the great the bondedness of the Vietnamese family, and right, brought up um, in the, uh, an atrocity that happened that I was an eyewitness to. Um, three mamasons, older Vietnamese women, <clears throat> were digging troop, uh, dig, digging roots. Okay because the rice paddies had been herbicided and bombed out they were trying to get food they were you know they were down to digging roots in the ground they got too close to our wire somebody decided and we opened up with our m50s and blew them apart right so they literally was blown blown, blown apart and uh, <clears throat> so right around dawn the next morning just at dawn Three teenagers from the same village, which I, I, I strongly, strongly suspect are either the grand, were grandchildren or children of these mamasans, attacked our perimeter wire with their bare hands, and they were blown apart. Uh, there was one left; he was blood, head to feet, and. Uh, um, he was just <coughs> asking for nook, which is uh, Vietnamese for water. Almost invariably, when you're dying, your last request is for water, especially. And, the, and uh, six 
uh, six of the medics, Navy medics that always were went along, they were the medics for the Marines, were standing around him, and they were pouring their canteens of water on the ground around him and spitting on him. And these are medics. Right? Well, I, at that time, I, I remember I just said, I'm yelling, he's a human being. He's a human being. And uh, I ran up and, and got my canteen to his lips, right? And hopefully he had got a little bit of water, but I was pulled away from my other, by other troops. Later I was, uh, later I had um, a visit in my hooch and an um, M16 rifle butt jammed into my face and head. And so I was... Uh, because uh, troops thought I was a commie sympathizer, right? So, but that's just one, one incident. But how strongly bonded the family, right? Those, those young teenagers just were in such rage after their moms and grandmothers. You know? And, and we, we see this, and, what, and the lesson that we didn't learn <clears throat> from that mm -hmm. when we're in Iraq when we were in Afghanistan as and we didn't think people were going to buy, to to um want us out of their country mm -hmm. and we had not learned that lesson how hard and long people will fight on their land regardless of what we're looking for mm -hmm. but we see we see the uh, those same incidents. I think that's what makes um, your exhibit so powerful. Um, is that we see these atrocities occurring, like we talked about before. Hirsch, you know, he right. not only did he write about that, but then in two thousand four, he, he talked about the uh, Abu Ghraib. And uh, and what what do we do with prisoners? What do we do with with civilians? Um, we these search and de destroy missions, um, how they really take the humanity out of out of people. You know the similarities between the Vietnam War and Abu Ghraib. Just picking that one incident is the contempt for prisoners, the contempt for people whose whose societies we don't understand, and and I don't think yeah. we've come from. Vietnam to the present right. in, in any better place. I'd also like to make the point, though, that there were atrocities on both sides. Oh, sure. Now, I, uh, it's war. There's no right side in war. Right. Because invariably, both sides in the, are going to commit atrocities. And that's where, I, you know, we need to see that, right, before we can begin to realize a world that abolishes war as a way of dealing with our problems. And you're listening to Thursday Night Talk here in KHSU. I'm Brenda Starr, your host, and uh, my guests are Rob Hepburn and Mac McDevitt, and we're talking about war and peace. <laughs> I was telling before you came, Rob, I was telling Mac about uh, how uh, once upon a time on this show I had Lynn Woolsey on, and... Um, I I lived in Sonoma County for a long time, so she was my representative for quite a while. And this was after she had retired. And usually in May, I will do a, a show on war. This one's a little earlier because of the anniversary. And what always 
what I've never been able to let go of is uh, why we don't have a Department of Peace. And Lynn and Dennis Kucinich would stand, because I'm, I'm a C-SPAN junkie, I'd, I'd like to know what they're doing. They would stand on the floor of the House year after year after year wanting a Department of Peace. A Department of Peace. And if one thing that could come out of these discussions and exhibits is to talk about a Department of Peace. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much we can do about war, but, but a Department of Peace is something that maybe we feel like, you know, our sensibilities will be in. Not only for, for, for the conventional war, but what about these peace officers on the street, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. These are the same um, soldiers, often the same soldiers who kill so recklessly and aban with abandon and with all the bullets in the world that now are policing our streets in their military, uh, militarized, with their militarized weapons and their militarized um, uh, uh, equipment and transportation. Tell us some stories, Mac, about... Because uh, you just came from San Francisco today. Just, Ladies and gentlemen, you just drove up today. So <laughs> talk about a special guest, right? We loaded up the exhibit, <laughs> and uh, it's not an easy task. Got a lot of help and packed it in the trailer, and it came up. Yeah. What kind of stories are you thinking about? You um, do... I wonder if most of the people who, who come to the exhibit, do they know about the massacre, or are they... Or uh, is is it this this current state of our war state that makes him even more interested in knowing about something from the past? Well, it was interesting. We were in the veterans building down there, and some people just wandered in, uh, and and there was a couple of events going on, and people would wander in, and and uh, some of them uh, on a break, and some of them would come back, and anyway, so we had a real interesting uh, sort of group of people. But uh, many of them knew about the massacre, but uh, what we off, what I've done in the past, even in this project when I started, is we kind of can sand off the rough edges. You know, that, mm. you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to think about somebody shooting unarmed civilians. It's mm. even harder when you think about them shooting pregnant women or babies or little kids. You'd like to think that they were kind of berserk when they did it, but, but to realize these in, in this particular situation, our soldiers were methodical. It took them four hours to kill 503 people, and then they broke for lunch with the bodies around them. And then the other thing that is real hard for people, and we had some really good details from the new Howard Jones book uh, on Milai, uh, was the level of sexual assault, abuse, and mm -hmm. mutilation. Um, I think the, the army was able to document 20 cases of that, and it was probably more. So, um, so anyway, what people often said is, "I knew about this, but I, I I didn't know how bad it was," or "I knew about this, but I didn't know about the rest of the war and how we did this again and again in different kinds of ways." Yeah, it's interesting from. Yeah, there seemed to be a particular rage toward the women, and uh, and I know of uh, 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 women that were shot to death because they wouldn't do certain sexual acts. The um, and um, and also I uh, well also the women. That's another thing. A legacy of the war of any war. 
um, because the, the the rice paddies had been bombed out, and there's no way to feed the people. And the only you know the one thing that gets money during in the war is prostitution. So thousands and thousands upon thousands of Vietnamese women, young Vietnamese women, were forced into depressed economically to support their families, and really sometimes their whole villages depended down on that income. And, and um, so, uh, yeah, um, you know, I had met a woman there myself, and I wanted—I actually was crazy enough to think I might get married to her. Uh, she was killed, and uh, but the uh, the yeah the rage against women maybe it had something to do because they were known as some of the best fighters. See, the, well, the, honey, uh, women don't have to be known as anything to get uh, abused or to vi- be right. violated. Yeah, but I mean, you know, they were. But here we are, these big, lucky, you know, white European. Yes, right. We're wet, you know, oftentimes six feet or more, right? And the Vietnamese are slight, you know, about five foot four, right, right. And the women, right. And they were beating our ass, okay? Right. They were beat, you know, they were right. And that built up rage. That built up rage. Yeah. And it was, was known that the women fighters among the VC were really incredible fighters, too. And uh, so, you know, they were, they're our enemy, right? And they were, and we were, right? And I really believe it was through the frustration that built up, how can this happen to us? We're, you know, superior, bigger, white Europeans, and they're, right? And we took it out on civilians. We took it out on families. And, and, and the people who might have killed your buddies on the field. Yeah. We have a caller from Redway, Douglas. Welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Hello, Douglas. Are you there? Oh, he's listening to the radio. Hi. So, I would like to take the conversation from these horrific specifics. Are we there? Yes. Okay. To something, a couple of more uh, global perspectives. One is that the reference point so far has been the American War, and I need to remind people that the Vietnamese were involved in a war with the French from the end of World War II to the mid-50s, so it was another 10-year war that they were engaged in. Oh, don't forget the Chinese. Let's go way back. Well, I'll get there. (laughs) So, uh, well, the Japanese and then etc. So, um, but uh, just from World War II onward, the Vietnamese were continually at war, and the French war cost them almost as many lives as the American war did. And it cost the French almost as many lives as the American war cost the Americans. Uh, most of the French that were killed were actually foreign legionnaires, and most of them were Africans. So the French used their colonial troops to, uh, that's who they lost in Vietnam for the most part. And they were mostly the, the grunts, the, the the soldiers because the officer corps were, were French nationals. So that's that's one thing that needs to be remembered in this, in this conversation was that it was not just the American involvement. Uh, I too heard that story uh, around Cy Hirsch a couple of years ago or however many years and <clears throat> one of the things that I remember is a woman and I can only paraphrase her at this point but a woman from the village who had been uh, 
saved in the massacre by the fact that she was under straw and under other bodies and so, as a little girl and uh, she was asked how she could possibly welcome Americans because My Lai had become part of the Vietnam War tourism circuit and she said if we don't have open hearts how will they ever learn and at that point I of course broke down in tears and, and planned a trip to Vietnam uh, for the following year so I, I went to Vietnam last year for the first time and my veteran background and I don't mean to take anything away from the people who went there and braved combat but I was a veteran of the anti-war movement here and in fact uh, was one of the organizers of draft counseling in the Eureka area uh, in, in the end of the 60s um, so in going to Vietnam it became abundantly clear to me that in many many ways the Vietnamese have moved way beyond the war uh, certainly there's still the effects as, as your guests have said in terms of, of uh, genetic effects from the agents that we dropped all over the country and certainly there you see amputees I did not go into the south at all I stayed north of Hanoi I didn't really want to go to the place where the war had been fought on the ground um, not to say that the north wasn't affected so I didn't see the number of war casualties that still exist if you go to the south as I, as I hear but Here's just a little perspective. When I was in high school, I graduated from high school in 1963. The end of World War I was 45 years before that. In 2018... 25 years before that. 45. 45 years prior. In 2018, the end of the United States' involvement in that war, which was 1973, was 45 years ago. So... Mm. You think about how long World War I seemed to you yeah. when you were a kid. That's what the high school kids in Vietnam, it's ancient history to them. Mm -hmm. That's and, such a good point, Douglas. And they're a big part of Vietnam because there are a lot of people under 25 there. And the people, it, it was like we visited war memorials that were just derelict. I mean, people were not keeping them up. There were some that there were, but it was like, it's in their past and this country is thrusting itself forward into the modern world and i don't mean to take away any of the specific horrific stories that your guests have been telling you because i'm about to burst into tears yet again as i did every day in vietnam because that's all very real but thankfully human nature is such that they they're, they've arced, they've arced beyond it and that's all i can say because i'm about to cry bye bye thank you for your call so um yeah, thank, thanks for that. The uh, it's interesting. The um, the a, a group of uh, of folks came Vietnamese came from the consulate to see the exhibit, mm -hmm. and uh, number one, they were very uh, they're very impressed. They said, in the heart of San Francisco, in the Veterans Building, you can have an exhibit like this. Thank you for telling this story. Mm. On the other hand, I totally agree that the, most of the Vietnamese, they, they've moved on. But this exhibit is for us. And unfortunately, as I look at it, um, we're still haunted by it. I certainly am. And also, we're, we continue to do much of the same things, going to countries we don't understand the culture, we kick down the doors. Um, we were the perpetrators here, and even though the French were horrific, they didn't have the level of firepower. We, we financed 80% of their war costs, but they didn't have the firepower 
that we had, and they they weren't dedicated to actually uh, just going ahead and destroying everything in these small villages. Uh, that's not the way they were fighting their war. They were fighting a more almost conventional war when the, when the war really broke out. So I, I think when I think about this, I think this might be our last chance at this 50th anniversary to really push for us to remember Vietnam and the Vietnam War, though I think it's going to hang on in other ways for a long time. We have uh, another caller from Eureka, Nate. Welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm uh, also a member of Veterans for Peace Humboldt Bay Chapter, along with Rob. And um, <clears throat> I was a member of the Blue Water Navy, so I never set foot on uh, Vietnamese soil. Um, but a lot of people listening to a program like this, they get the impression that the um, only responsibility for atrocities and what goes on in war um, tends to lie with the people who are in combat in a country. And nothing could be further from the truth. And this is applicable to the um, wars and fighting that's going on today. Um, the names and some of the circumstances have changed, but basically there's a long web of complicity um, and responsibility for the atrocities of war that extend far backwards from the actual person pulling the trigger. Uh, for example, I was on an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin. We referred to our little tour as the uh, Gulf of Tonkin Yacht Club. And um, I was a member of the Air Intelligence Unit aboard the aircraft carrier. And my responsibility was to analyze aerial photography. By the, back then it was done by planes flying. Today it's done by satellite. And um, if I saw something that was suspicious, um, which I did, then I brought it to the attention of my Air Intelligence officer he brought it to the attention of the air wing commander. The air wing commander um, got on the radio and uh, called to an airstrike that was already on its way to Vietnam and rerouted the uh, air so uh, bombing sortie to this particular suspicious site. And the next morning when we flew over to take photographs, half of the Vietnamese hamlet disappeared. So what I'm trying to the point I'm trying to get at is it wasn't just the bomber in the aircraft that dropped the bomb that was responsible for that hamlet disappearing. Um, it goes backwards really quickly. I'll cover some things. Some things have changed, but some things today in history uh, today they're the same. Um, for example, the flight deck officer who gives the signal to launch the aircraft. If he didn't give that signal, that aircraft would not have left the aircraft carrier. That bomb would never have been dropped. Um, myself, if I hadn't said, come here and look at this, then that target never would have been a, um, uh, uh, targeted. Uh, <clears throat> the air wing commander, if he hadn't redirected the sortie, 
um, you know, the, the, the cook that prepared the pilot's breakfast, if, if he didn't have a decent meal, he wouldn't be, you know, fit to fly. Um, the, the, the doctor that certified the pilot that he was fit to fly. Um, if he hadn't, that bomber never would have left the aircraft carrier. Well, typically there are uh, at least nine or more supporting people behind every one uh, soldier to, yeah, to get mean, out you, there. Yes, You could take it all the way back to the recruiter that recruited a soldier or a pilot or whomever. You know, that, uh, like I said, this web of complicity goes way back. Uh, what and about so, the taxpayers, eh? And, and what about whom? The taxpayers. The taxpayers. The, absolutely. The the, the, by supporting, um, you know, with their taxes, they're, they're also complicit. Absolutely. And so I just wanted to make it clear that it's, it's not just the soldier on the ground or the bomber in the air that's creating, um, you know, that's responsible for what happens. It's, it's everybody involved. But we like to blame General... Westmoreland and Robert McNamara more than anyone else. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I know. I've heard it millions of times. Um, you know, but um, my responsibility was no less than anybody else's, and that extends to everybody that's involved. I, I, that's that's uh, that's so true, Rob. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree with Nate one hundred percent. I mean, it, you know, it starts with our government and the people of this country to support. Our government and its policies, um, and uh, we, we have to realize that as we speak today, at least twenty vets have killed themselves today. <laughs> Every day. Every day. And uh, that's because of the experiences they went through in the war, right, in the military. Um, that's another legacy of war, of making war, right? And uh, we need to really um, change our ways. Uh, we, you know, we need to uh, uh, realize that um, if we're going to be here, uh, we got to work together to solve our problems of the, of the earth our, our environment or you know our our you know our our environment's coming down on top of us because of our, our governments that's a war too that the trump administration has got another war going on it's against the earth itself it's against life on this planet that's another war well, i really believe that well sometimes and so, you know we need to you know we need to make Make the connections, most of all, to make the connections. Yeah. There's a, the human race is also, it's a species. Mm -hmm. And it's a species that often has... We're all has, together. And, yeah, but it, it, mm -hmm. I don't think it, sometimes it, it doesn't realize it's part of nature itself. Once again, we're here on Thursday Night Talk. If you, if you have a call, 826-4805 text 4925478 or our uh, toll-free number is 800-640-5911 we appreciate your comments so what where where's your next stop here spokane uh, in a couple of weeks 
And the big question is that no one's called in to ask is, how come we're not going to have this uh, memorial here uh, in, in Arcata? Mm. Or could we one day? Maybe one day if you, we might be able to come back. We just didn't have enough time to pull together. Uh, we're a small group here and a small you know, group. And uh, so um, that's basically it. We didn't have enough time to put it together. But, it, but you mentioned something that's very interesting, that this could be the last time with this 50th anniversary that we, we bring forth um, uh, th- those incidents because we have so many more current incidents. And, we, and don't we need to make the connectedness between what happened then and what continues to happen? Yes. It's, 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 the, the beauty of a memorial is, uh, is if you can then look at what, if, what did we learn from that experience, uh, how we can dialogue about it, and how we can work towards peace and justice in the world. Um, that's what I think, anyway. That, that and this is a there's a group called the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, and our VFP chapter is a member of that. And they uh, are a coalition of 200 atrocity sites and uh, places where social injustice has happened uh, all over the world. And uh, and that's the pattern we use for the exhibit is their pattern. Is how do we how do we use memory? How do we involve people in memory? so that they can learn and they can dialogue and they can make a renewed commitment to social justice. Mm-hmm. And you have more um, more places that you're going to be traveling to the rest of this year? Well, this this was our shakedown cruise, this first one. You know, we kind of got this together, took it. Rob, you know about shakedown cruises. And, uh, and so I'm going back to Chicago with the exhibit. We're going to take a good look at it. We're going to make some changes, add some things. Uh, and then we have a rough tour schedule where we'll be in the Midwest, and then in the summer we'll be in New England and possibly New York City, and then back in the Midwest and then down near the end of the year towards um, to Florida and uh, down down in the south. And then we'll do we'll put a tour to get tour together for 2019 as well. I wanted it to run from the time the Milai massacre happened. Until the time it was reported, yeah, I like that. Eighteen months plus, so yeah. about two years. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, we're probably winding up now, but or, or soon. And I just came into my mind that no human being is collateral damage. That's, That's right. one of the right. When you so don't let them bullshit you. Don't let them, that that propaganda right reduce human beings and animals and nature. To collateral damage. That's the problem. A disrespect for life. And maybe that's what we really need to work on is respecting all life. And then we wouldn't make war anymore. So so I have a, a way that I, I've started to think about this too. And you know, as human beings, as, as our species, we have this tremendous ability and, and uh, capacity for empathy. And that empathy is often for people like ourselves people we kind of understand, people we think are part of our tribe and whatever. And we also have a a tremendous ability to do violence to people that we see as the other or as Mm -hmm. different from us. So anything we can work on, um, Rob, uh, obviously you're somebody who had deep empathy, even in that situation Mm -hmm. in, in the military in Vietnam, you saw the other person as a human being. And somehow my own belief is that if we can just keep working on that empathy, 
that we can see people as uh, like ourselves, if we can have compassion for each other. Mm-hmm. Expand that, the circle. Expand that helps. the circle. And that goes on be. to the earth, to yeah. the animals that live there. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm hoping that this exhibit experience helps people with that, helps people understand what it might be like to be a person living in a war zone for 10 years with these people who come in different than you don't speak your language there's one little vignette we tried to put as many Vietnamese voices in this where this young boy was saying I lost my legs in the war and I had to sit right by the entrance to the tunnel and when the bombing started I would roll into the tunnel Mm -hmm. and now all I can really do is I sit at my house and I try and keep the geese and the uh, and the ducks from coming into the house Mm -hmm. and I wish I could do more so if we could just feel, whoa, whoa, yeah. the cost of war, what, what's, what would that be like for me? Okay. You, uh, Michael, did you have someone who had called? We do. Um, they, wanted the, they wanted to take it off the air. Um, and they just wanted to ask if you could quickly address the idea of um, moral injury PSD. Moral injury PTSD? Yeah, PTSD, I'm sorry. Well... Okay, there's PTSD and there's moral injury, uh, which is not really recognized by the Vets Administration, but it's just as real and uh, destroys lives just as much. Uh, It's when you're... The moral injury is when um, you feel that you've been part of evil. Right? Evil. The the word is uh, live spelt backwards, by the way. I always thought that was interesting. And... <clears throat> so that you're, it's like you have a scar on your heart, right? A major scar that doesn't ever heal. Out of time for comments, but that's moral injury. Uh, just one thing before we leave, because you know, Rob, you talked about your own experience with what you saw and what you could do while you were there. Just wanted to bring up the. There was one pilot i think it was a helicopter pilot hugh thompson yes hugh thompson or or, what does it what does it take what kind of character do you have when you're when you're going to go up against uh basically orders basically Mm -hmm. you know hey hey you could be sent to the brig whatever Mm -hmm. talk i mean i I think of that man now i think of him as the same as as the the young man who stood in front of of the tanks in china Mm -hmm. that same kind of fortitude Mm -hmm. and we still have that too and he was 25 and i think his two crew members were 19 and 20 coburn and andretta sorry if i could just make a uh, quick interjection here the caller that um had that last comment uh, called back to say that the uh, the VA is recognizing um, moral injury now. Oh, okay. I'm okay. Glad. Cool. All righty. Well, and let's that, see how far they'll go with that. Yeah. And that might be why, as a people, people who grew up during that period of time, that we're still struggling with this Vietnam experience, is that that moral injury that we feel our country did, our military did, our people did, and we were somehow complicit in that whether we're, I had an anti-war activist who built a collage and said I, I, I just didn't do enough I didn't do enough and that was so whereas I think the Vietnamese are not carrying moral injury for mm-hmm. the most part they really feel like they were in the right they were fighting for their country they won they can move on 
Yeah, there went the perpetrator. Often uh, that cycle continues, doesn't it? And that yeah. then that place of forgiveness um, frees you where your cycle of, uh, of guilt. What's interesting to me is I remember talking with some people some years ago, young people on the right, and they thought that we had won the war. I'm wondering if, how many people are like that that they think the U.S. won the war. Well... Let's let's That's let's right. let's I mean, talk about that. I don't think we've won a war since World War II, and uh, that that's that's something else. Um, we have run, run over a little. I want to uh, be very sincere in thanking my guests this evening, Mac. Good luck and uh, much continued. You. It's it. I can't say success because it's kind of it's it's. Uh, I don't even have a word to describe what it must be to actually see it and to feel it and to participate. Well, in the groups. success is when people are talking to each other, yeah. when people mm-hmm. are having heartfelt conversations, when there's this interaction uh, around this shared experience. That's that's it. That's for me. That's like whoa. That's what I came for. That's what I was hoping for. And Rob, right. thank you for your continued shared experiences. Mm-hmm. Maybe see you at the uh, at the garden project. Yeah, I just say, uh, like we're talking, the more unified we are as a human species, and from right, the less terrorism will be on this earth. And peace. that's and that's our quote for the evening. I want to thank our listeners. I want to thank our callers, uh, Doug and Nate, and um, the project committee chair for the. Uh, Milai, Milai Memorial is Mac McDevitt at uh, and MilaiMemorial.org MilaiMemorial.org and uh, how can people reach you Rob? Uh, Veterans for Peace Chapter 56 we, we can just google it alrighty see you next month until then peace frog thank you thank you You've been listening to Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. Thank you to our host, Brenda Starr, and our guests, Rob Hepburn and Mac McDevitt, and to our callers this evening. We'd love to get feedback on our programs. Please email Thursday Night Talk at khsu.org and like our Facebook page, Thursday Night Talk on KHSU. Coming up next week on Thursday Night Talk, we celebrate National Poetry Month. Michael Fennell talks with Humboldt's own poet laureates, Jerry Martin and Jim Dodge. That's Thursday, April 19th. Thanks to KHSU Thursday Night Talk producer Geraldine Goldberg. Our theme music is composed and performed by Jeff Kreider. My name is Michael. I've been your studio engineer tonight. Stay tuned to KHSU. No Room for Squares is coming up next.